Chapter 15. One eye green, one veiled sea blue. Matthew Brown lived at an apartment complex towards the outskirts of the city, with decently thick walls, kudzu creeping up the side, and a door whose lock was picked with relative ease. As Will stepped into the apartment and lingered on the landing, he supposed he could have asked for a key, maybe explained the situation to someone who would take pity and just let him in. He was tired of having to explain himself, though. He was tired of completely understanding and recognizing the absolute expression of dismay, followed by pity. If there was one thing he'd choke on in the end, it was the pity that people gave him, now that they knew about his fucking eyes. What have you done to your eyes, Will? Matthew's apartment was clean, mildly spartan in furnishings, with a distinct organization that showed his living alone rather than with a roommate to save on money. It was a one-bedroom apartment with a plain blue bedspread, one bathroom with a plain blue curtain, and one photo in the living room of a man in profile showing one blue eye. He stared at that photo of himself for a long time. It was one that Alana had tagged him in on Facebook, something teasing and reminiscent of their college days, when all seemed to be somewhat manageable. He looked younger in it, the lines in weariness not so set into his face. It was a stoic photo, like Matthew's mother said, but it was the sort of photo that made him look handsome rather than fatigued. Purposeful, as Red Dragon had called him. He sat on the sofa next to the end table that housed the picture, and he tried to sink into the space that Matthew Brown lived in. The space that he existed without having to hide himself. He'd not even been able to be honest with his family, his co-workers, or his friends. He'd pretended at a relationship with his family, sneered at Lecter's connection to Will with his co-workers, bemoaned singledom with his friends. There was nothing inside of the apartment that felt truly like Matthew at first. He shifted on the sofa the way he imagined Matthew would, lingered in the kitchen whose refrigerator held no magnets boasting announcements of weddings, reminders of bills, or lists for groceries. Inside of the fridge, a small bowl of leftovers contained an egg salad, condiments were minimal, and the milk had expired. Will poured the milk down the sink so that later in the week Miss Brown didn't have to when she came to collect her son's things. The books in the one bookcase in the house held discussions on psychiatry, notes on soulmates. It was there that he'd felt he'd found some of Matthew Brown, confused and bitter as he highlighted the portion discussing half-connections and how they ultimately were like having no connection at all, both socially and neurologically. Will stood frozen by the shelves of books on anatomy, books on animals, books on zoology. There was even one of Will Graham's own books, something he hadn't intended to have published, but Alana had coerced him into it after a publicist made contact. 
discussing the ramifications of the social indoctrination of soulmates within education and upbringing. There were notes throughout it, written in a cramped hand in the margins. Exposure to normalized need of soulmates at young age leads to expectations later in life socially. Friend groups determined in high school based on if you have soulmate or not. Graham ostracized for not having soulmate. Maybe bitter. Lots of derision here. This is in reference to soulmates whose sentences in prison were lighter due to having a living soulmate that stood before a judge and begged to not be kept apart. Bad experiences with soulmates at young age. This one written beside the case study Will had used to explain serious cases of bullying for those that had already found their soulmates in elementary school by other children that were unable to articulate their own jealousy or worry that they wouldn't find one. Statistics of colored contacts purchased to hide soulmates or to pretend to have soulmates. No clear stats. Green 0394 for mine. Graham visited with Dr. Bloom again, shook my hand, but he didn't look at my eyes. This was written beside a paragraph discussing the rarest form of soulmate pairing, the staggered connection. Sometimes one person connected early on, and their eye changed color. It was a half-connection that had no effect on the second person until months later, years even, when they met eyes again and a full connection was established. Will had gone on to discuss events could have occurred between the initial eye change that caused the other person to suddenly connect, and there were several sentences underlined, highlighted, near smudged with fingers that gripped the pages tightly. The spine of the book was bent, much loved and warm from being read over and over and over again. The deepest indent in the spine, though, was the space that opened up to the discussion of the staggered connection. Will tasted his desperation there. He sat down beside the bookcase where he imagined Matthew would have sat, and he traced over the letters written along the margins. He could feel the hope in the words, the idea that maybe if Will had managed to look again, something would have happened in their time apart, that he would finally connect back. It was in those vulnerable spaces that he finally found Matthew Brown, quietly yearning that if he just waited long enough, Will would see him for what he was, what they could be. I thought, what if he saw someone like me? He laid his head against the edge of the bookcase, book open on his lap. He was cruel when he could have been kind. He couldn't take his anger out on Hannibal at the time. Therefore, he took his anger out on the catalyst, the one that dipped along the shadows and let the ball roll that inevitably led to Molly and her goddamn paws. The one that spent the quietest part of his days wondering if one day Will would see him and finally see. There was a thin notebook beside a biology book, and he slid the other book back into place, sitting down once more and propping himself up against the wall. It was a sketchbook, and he opened it. His gut tight. Sketchbooks were intimate. Writing was intimate. He was seeing too much, knowing too much. But for what he'd done to Matthew, he felt it was right that someone in the end knew him and knew him well. For the sake of the mother that hugged him beside the casket and thanked him for what he'd done, he owed it to Matthew to finally see. He saw himself in those pages. He hated himself a little bit more. They were sketches done from a mildly unpractised hand, but a hand nonetheless. Among small doodles of animals copied from the zoology book up above, Will saw himself through the eyes of Matthew. His estimation of Will Graham was far kinder than Will Graham's. He looked pensive, purposeful, and when he smiled, glancing off to the side, and Will recalled his meeting with a man that had a speech disorder where he could only speak when Will looked away. In many, he looked like there was a glow about him, something more than flesh and bone and color. There were earnest expressions, resigned expressions, 
page after page gave Will the understanding of just how someone saw him when they hardly knew him. With each intimate line and curve of graphite, there was a longing and a comfort. Three and a half years of sketches, small notes that tracked Will's accomplishments with pride. March 14th, moved and began work at a small office specializing in soulmate grief. May 21st, awarded certificate for best lectures on soulmate grief, quantified by the ratings and reviews of attendees. August 3rd, positive review for work posted in the journal. October 12th, appearance in court that aided in release of a soulmate wrongfully imprisoned. Cornerstone of case, his analysis. October 20th, dating someone? How long? February 14th, her name's Molly, and they're not soulmates. After confirming that Will and Molly weren't soulmates, he went back to his sketches and his notes of things Will had done, things that were public knowledge and easily accessible. Alana must have mentioned something around Matthew about Will and Molly for him to have known. He traced over the pressure of the word not for a long time. The sensation of relief at Matthew realizing that Will may not have connected to him, but at least he hadn't connected to anyone else either. He was jostled from his pained musings by the sound of the door opening, and he stood up quickly, tucking the notebook under his arm like it was his. A man he didn't recognize stood in the doorway, and he looked appropriately confused. "'Who the fuck are you?' the man demanded. Will noted the keys in hand, the name tag at his belt. He thought to maybe placate the man, maybe explain himself. The words were jarring in his throat, though. Instead, he gestured towards the photo of himself on the end table, like it should explain everything. People are impressionable when silence spreads and gaps exists. They make explanations, create stories to placate themselves. People have a need to know, but when little information is revealed, they make the information. This was no different. Will saw his eyes leap from Will to the photo, then back to Will. Thoughts tumbled, shifted, and before Will's very eyes, he saw the man create a world within himself. A world while Will was a soulmate that just endured the wrenching loss of losing his other half. Oh, you... You were Matt's. His voice trailed off, and he nodded. You look... Hell, sorry. I just never seen you around. I'm his landlord. Well, I'm the landlord's son. Nice to meet you, Will managed. I'm leaving, if that's all right. Yeah, shit, man. Yeah. Will passed by him, and there was that fucking look again. Pity. He despised the pity. He paused in the doorway, notebook tucked under hand, and he glanced back. His mother's coming to get his things later this week, he said. You don't... you don't want them? No. Will left him with that silence as well. Let the man make his excuses as to why he wouldn't want his soulmate's remaining things. Driving back to his hotel, Will supposed that it only made sense that if he'd just lost the most important thing in his world, the last thing he'd want is to have to remember it. The woman he sat down across from was aged, both from time and from a life of secrets. She eyed him across the table, and he eyed her back, fingers tapping idly on a file. You're the biological mother of Francis Dolarahide, Marion Vaught, he said at last. She had mismatched eyes, and the sort of hair that screamed the wife of a politician. I didn't keep contact with him, she said curtly. Age had given her fine lines around the eyes from posed smiles and harsh glares. You had an orphanage take him soon after birth, where he was taken in by his grandmother, your mother, at about five years of age. 
Will said, ignoring the shrill, shrewd stare she held. Behind the mismatched gaze, there was something decidedly guilty. Later, though, you took him back once more after having three children with your soulmate when he was aged nine. You're telling me things I know, Dr. Graham, she said, shifting her chair. Her discontent was as tangible as the itch of Kevlar under his shirt. Is there something wrong? He died a few years after he married that woman. Her sneer told him exactly what she thought about Reba's skin color. The derision was an itch he couldn't reach, and he frowned. As a soulmate psychiatrist, my specialty is in the studies of the psyches of children, whose minds are still developing within a culture of soulmates like ours. He once saw a psychiatrist that was working with him on the grievances regarding soulmates, and we've attempted to analyze his mental state for our work. What do you think I can give you that a shrink can't? He didn't speak of his childhood very much. Only a month or so after you took care of him once again, you had him taken back to the orphanage under unknown circumstances. He'd been watching her face, and when he emphasized unknown, an odd sort of spasm twitched near her right eye. It's been so long that I can scarce recall. She sniffed delicately. He burned their house down, you know. I think you can recall, Will replied. I really can't. They considered one another from across the small desk, a spare office he'd borrowed from a local counselor's business Dr. Avery had contacted for him. While Will's face was grave passiveness, hers was defensive, a stark expression of a shuttered window with no way to peer behind the curtains. I think he killed an animal, Will said at last. Is this how you speak to your clients? Marion demanded. You're not a client, Will replied. I think he killed the family pet, and you sent him away for it. The horror, unmasked at the ease in which he revealed a sordid family secret, was palpable. Will wondered if he reached out. He could touch it with his bare fingertips, wrestle it into something substantial so that he could understand Red Dragon through the mother that abandoned him twice. That little shit wasn't normal, she said at last, and my husband, my soulmate, just got sicker than sick after he was there. Lost the election, lost face with the community because of that, that boy. The three children you had with Howard Vaught were well aware that they were the product of a soulmate union and that Francis Dolorahide was not said Will, ignoring the way her hands clenched a small handkerchief in her lap. It was reminiscent of old Southern women in church, trying to wrangle themselves together when they heard something particularly spiritual or troublesome. Just how did that line manifest in your home? I don't have to deal with this. You know, you people call me, make it seem like this is something important. He's not even alive, and everyone is trying to make me take responsibility for something that isn't mine. She stood up to leave, fumbling with her purse as she strode towards the door cardigan slipping off her shoulder with the weight of the purse swinging wildly. Miss Vaught, were you aware that he was being abused? She paused at the door, turned to consider Will with a furious, horrified expression. Excuse me? He didn't speak of his past with his psychiatrist, but he did speak of his dreams. Nightmares of scissors held against his genitalia, threats of emasculation, brothers that weren't brothers slamming his face to a mirror repeatedly after a lost election. Were you aware of these things occurring in your home? Or did you simply not care because he was the product of something that wasn't your soulmate, therefore his existence was inconsequential to you? Will hated doing small speeches like that, words tumbling and falling like rocks that crashed every which way. He'd hit his mark, though. The longer he spoke, the angrier she became. The more embarrassed she became as she hissed, stalked closer and leaned over the chair she'd once sat in, fuming. He took my beautiful daughter's cat and strung it up, she snapped. 
and he had a face not even a mother could love. My mother held his life over my head like some sort of trump card because I didn't want him. But in the end, he was just like her, and they burned their homes around themselves until there was nothing left. Neither one of them had a soulmate for a reason, Dr. Graham. I'm the only one in my family that did. And what's that say about them? I think that says more about you than it does about them, Miss Vaught. Will replied calmly, that you would turn one child away for not being the product of a simple chemical reaction in the brain. Fuck you, and don't ever call me again, she snapped, and she stormed out of the office, slamming the door behind her. Will sat in the aftermath of her guilty fury, and he felt that he understood Francis Dolarahide a little bit more, the thing he was searching for behind the mirrors and Miss Hess's and Miss Panther's eyes. He got a call much later, as he sat in his hotel room and turned the bottle of whiskey around in his hands. It was almost gone, a testament to his commitment of numbness and his commitment to drinking himself into oblivion, when he didn't have to fire on all pistons. He was only guilty at Beverly having wasted so much money on the bottle when he'd partaken of it with a gluttonous need that well drinks could have provided for less. It wasn't Molly's phone, nor was it the landline to her family's house. Will decided to answer head propped to the side to hold up the phone as he poured himself another glass. Hello? Working late, Dr. Graham. Good evening, Hannibal, Will said wearily. He wasn't sure whether or not to be surprised. He'd stayed well enough away after Hannibal agreed to help them, unable to fathom staring at that space between them with no way to really close the distance. It infuriated him. The fact that it infuriated him disgusted him. You don't sound as though it is a good evening. In fact, I'd say you're three glasses into a rather potent form of whiskey. Do you feel drunk when I'm drunk? Will wondered. You once informed me that the emotions are only felt in extreme moments. For the time of our connection, I've come to the conclusion that either you are only able to feel things in extremities, or the distance has heightened my ability to feel your emotions due to your refusal to come close to me for the time being. Hannibal paused to allow Will a miserable laugh. However, when you drink, it is a muted thing. The longer that time passes, the more I find there to be a far more frequent bouts of muted emotions. They call that alcoholism, Will informed him. Does Molly know that you have fallen off the wagon, dear Will? Her name in Hannibal's mouth was wrong. All wrong. Will studied the lovely color in the glass, reflected every which way by the lamp next to his favored chair, and he sighed dismally. Molly paused us, he confessed and it's not because of the alcoholism. My dear, are you trying to inform me that it's because of me? She wasn't pausing us before you came along, that's for damn sure. Hannibal was quiet, and Will wondered what sort of secrets he kept, what sort of thoughts he was latching on to without sharing. He sipped the whiskey, savored the feeling of numbness that it provided. The afterburn was much like how his skin felt whenever he was too far away from Hannibal, and that sort of torment was something he was more than happy to deal with. I've been informed that I'm to be moved tomorrow, Hannibal said, when Will didn't elaborate on Molly's ill-fated pause. You're finally getting what you wanted. What is it that you think I want? Hannibal asked. To be closer to you? To have reason to be moved near you? Will snorted. Nothing so romantic. You wanted a way out of that institution and I've provided it. An implication that the benefit of being close to you is somehow subpar to the idea of being let out of this infernal place. Rest assured, Dr. Graham, I am also looking forward to being exposed to you without this wall between us once more. Touch starved? Will taunted. The moment he said it, 
He wished that he hadn't. It sounded almost flirtatious, something he'd say to someone he wanted to touch. A wicked, dark part of his mind whispered, Don't you, though? Don't you want to touch? As much as you are, I think, Hannibal replied dryly. Although with the alcohol you've supplied yourself with, it's difficult to tell. Was that your intention? Why did you call me Hannibal? Will asked, exasperated. You can hide many things through your use of self-medication, but you can't hide your pain at your dear Molly pausing you, Hannibal said. In your mind, everything you've done now seems almost inconsequential, that you can't return to her and say that all is well. I don't want to talk about that, Will snapped. She'd have paused you whether or not you connected to me, dear Will, Hannibal assured him. In the end, I was not the one that brought the darkness out of you. I merely showed you mine in return. Will finished off the whiskey with a vengeance, slamming the glass down with a little too much force. He thought about pacing, about throwing a few more things, about cursing the shadow of Red Dragon lurking nearby. But ultimately, he slumped down farther in his chair and swallowed heavily. The room hot and blurring around him, like the landscape was melting at his very feet. You don't have to remind me, he whispered, aggrieved. I am well aware what sort of person I am, Hannibal. The kind of person that I will always be. Will didn't have to see Hannibal get strapped into something much resembling a dolly that packed large boxes for delivery men. Nor did he have to see him get wrapped into a straitjacket. He sat outside of the Baltimore State Hospital for the criminally insane the next day and the early morning and enjoyed a small cup of coffee that didn't come from the BAU break room. The last time he'd shared a cup with Beverly, he'd had to ruminate on the taste of two-day-old, reused beans. She hadn't been sorry in the least when he'd pointed it out. Beside him, a soulmate argued on the phone with someone, head dipped down. Their whispers were harsh, prickling things. I know she's in prison, mother, but oh my god, did you really just say that? Really? She's mentally unwell. You can't just... No. No. Yes, god, I know, but... Her voice trailed off, and she cast a side eye to Will, who pointedly tried to ignore her. Look, I know you think this is just stupid. You and dad aren't soulmates, but you have no idea what it's like. I can't... Just stay away. I can't just... A pause as she scrambled for words to convince her mother of her dubious choices. I could walk up to anyone with a soulmate, and they'd tell you the same. You can try to stay away, but sooner or later it pulls you back. She's always kind to me, Mom, and we were dating long before she ever killed those people. Will brushed his thumb over his lip to rub away a small, secretive smile. You know what? I don't care what Pastor Mark says. How can you call it a sin if God made us soulmates? Because it's a girl? Would you care if I connected to a boy that killed people instead? That's so homophobic! The voice on the other end grew louder, but Will couldn't quite make out the words. Oh my god! Okay! Fine! God! She hung up and threw her phone into her purse. Righteous indignation. Will sipped his coffee. He could taste her pain as much as he could taste her longing. It didn't mix well with the coffee. Do you have a soulmate in there? She asked glumly. Yeah. Worker or inmate? Will glanced at his watch. Freddy's article had been out for a few days now. Inmate, he said. How long? Not too long. My mom, she says it's not worth it. But you know, right? You know it's worth it? She was desperate. She saw his mismatched eyes and needed reassurance from someone that knew. Will watched the army of vehicles roll up. Four police cars and a transport van. He finished his coffee, tossed the cup into the trash can beside him, and stood up rolling his neck back and forth to pop it. He sniffed his collar, 
It smelled of expensive whiskey and a long night of no sleep. I don't know yet, he said honestly. He glanced at her green eyes that were just different enough to be a problem within her family dynamic. If I see you around later, I'll be sure to tell you. She watched him climb into the back of the transport truck. She watched them drive away. Hannibal watched him from the cage he'd been locked into, arms tied tight around his torso, a mask strapped across the bottom of his face to keep his mouth from snapping. There was a part of Will that despised it, longed to rip it off him. But another part whispered that he'd bit a nurse's tongue off once. His heart rate hardly changed at it. His heart rate changed when he'd hurt Will, though. That thought closely followed, and Will sneered at it. Back in Baltimore for the time being, Hannibal noted lightly. I'd been in Maine, Will informed him. The need to reassure him that he hadn't been trying to run from him was as off-putting as the tie had been at Matthew Brown's funeral. What did you find in Maine, Dr. Graham? Francis Dolorahide's base of operations, he replied. The agent shot him a glance at giving away such information. But at the sight of his mismatched eye, they looked to lectors and couldn't suppress a shudder. Whatever they thought was kept silent, but Will could all but taste the discomfort, closely followed by the pity. He resented the pity. I'm sure it was enlightening, said Hannibal gleefully. Will hmmed an assent and shifted around the agent to sit down. Comfortable? Hannibal asked him as he settled down on the metal bench. On one side, the orderly sat prepared to administer a sedative if Hannibal became belligerent. On the other side of him, the agent wielded a shotgun. Going to be, he said. You? This is more fun than I've had in the last three years, he replied, and Will saw through the small holes made for breathing, the twitches of a smile. I owe it to you, dear Will. Happy to oblige, he muttered sarcastically.